Picture, if you would, five cruise ships, and uh, they're simultaneously sinking. And the first cruise ship is five miles off the shore. The second is 15 miles off the shore. The third is, uh, uh, the first is five, the second is 10, the third is 15, the fourth is 20 miles off the shore, and the fifth is 25 miles off the shore. And the commanding officer, you're a Navy SEAL, and the commanding officer says to you, go save the people. And so it makes sense. You load up in the helicopter, you go to the first cruise ship because it's the closest. It's five miles off the shore. And then you come back to base and you let people off, and now you have a decision to make. Are you going to fly over the needs of the first cruise ship in order to go the second. There's thousands on board, all five. Are you going to fly over the needs of the the first cruise ship to go the second? Are you going to fly over the needs of the first and second cruise ship to go the third? And you reason to yourself, man, we don't have the time, the energy, the manpower to go to the further cruise ships. And so you go to the first cruise ship, come back to base. Go to the first cruise ship, come back to base. Go to the first cruise ship, come back to base. Maybe go to the second cruise ship. Sorry, fourth, fifth, and fifth. uh, Sorry, third, fourth, and fifth cruise ship. There's just no time or manpower. Same story, but let's tweak it for a second. The commanding officer, listen to what he says. Let's tweak it and see if it changes our entire strategy. Five cruise ships simultaneously sinking, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 miles off the shore. But this time the commanding officer says to you, at the end of the day, I want there to be a representative from every cruise ship on this shore talking to the media, telling what happened aboard their boat. With that simple change of command, of every representative. I want a representative from every cruise ship. Now, you go to the fifth cruise ship first, then the fourth, then the third, and no cruise ship is to be visited twice before every cruise ship is visited at least once. Well, it's important to understand how God defines missions. When we look at the definition of missions, we don't just say, oh, everything's missions, from homeschool co-op to softball league to the, 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 the food pantry to Bible translation. You can't do that. You have to get a definition from the way God defines it. And here's the definition. The end goal is every tribe, tongue, and people having a representative. John, who's exiled on the island of Patmos, he's probably 85 years old. He's the only disciple not to die a martyr's death. And and God cracks this guy and gives him a view of heaven. And when he looks up, he he says two words. He says diversity. He says, it's as if there's someone from every tribe and language and people and nation. He says the word diversity and he says the word every. So what does that mean for you and I? It's very simple. It's simply put. You and I need to be about asking this question. Where is there not a representative of a Christ-following community? Where is there a people group that doesn't have a Christ-following community? Where are the people groups that have yet to hear the gospel? And then you, no matter what age or stage, no matter what job titles on your business card, you're about reaching them, whether you're a goer or a sender. So you're just asking, we're training our kids now. Hey, what people groups have never heard the gospel? And let's figure out how you in the eighth grade can reach them. Whether that's by prayer, by giving, by going someday, by welcoming them when you see some of them in the public library when you're on the same soccer team. So what do we need to be about reaching every tribe, every tongue. Now, just for the sake of simplicity, I'm going to boil it down to continents. Let's just say that the first cruise ship represents North America. Let's say that the second cruise ship represents Latin America. Let's say that the, thir- the, the third cruise ship represents Europe. The fourth cruise ship represents the Middle East, and the fifth cruise ship represents Asia. First cruise ship, North America. Second cruise ship, Latin America. 
Third cruise ship, Europe. Fourth cruise ship, Middle East. Fifth cruise ship, Asia. We've done a great job reaching the first and second cruise ship. We've done an okay job reaching the third. We've done a horrible job at reaching the fourth. And the vast majority of Christ followers that we do life with don't even know there's a fifth. Like the vast majority of Christ followers don't even know there's a fourth and fifth cruise ship. They're just stuck going first cruise ship, first cruise ship, first cruise ship. And you're like, man, I, I, I think we should reach the first cruise ship. But we can't avoid the, the fourth and fifth cruise ship. So this other specific language of, of the idea of people groups is given in a very, a very uh, understood idea of the Great Commission. Many of us understand the Great Commission. Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That of all nations is very interesting. Now notice, okay, notice, Jesus could have looked out at the audience and said, go and make disciples of all agros. Agros is the Greek word for country. He doesn't use agros. The Greek word that he uses here is ethnos. He says, pantata ethnos. Go and make disciples of all nations. That nations, when we think of the word nations, we're like, oh, there's 213 of them. They have a clearly marked border, a dictator, a currency, a military. But that's not, that's agros. That's country agros. Most believers are like, agros, let's go reach the agros, the countries. No, 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 no. The word is people groups, people groups, ethnos. Don't be an agros Christian, be an ethnos Christian. What's the difference between agros and it? Well, this is agros. This is Nigeria. And a lot of believers are like, go and reach Nigeria. And it's like, okay, I guess we need a team of seven. <laughs> you know, let's fly to Abuja. Let's pass out tracks. Let's do our best. Well, boy, we could do that. We could do that. But Jesus didn't say, make disciples of all agros. He said, ethnos, people groups. Nigeria is not one agros. It's 455 ethnos, people groups. 455 people groups. And Jesus, in Revelation 7, 9, and 5, 9, is saying, I want a representative from every ethnos, every tribe, every language, every people. Now, I literally, I, 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 I just... I want to define some terms, okay? I want to define some terms. And the two terms I want to define is the term reached and unreached, okay? Let me just define these terms because I would have missed this on a test. If there was a test on what's the definition of reached, I would have missed it. Let me give you the definition of reached. And then I'm going to give you the definition of unreached. Here's the definition of reached. 25-year-old in Little Rock. She loves her Lulus and her lattes. She's a teacher. She loves teaching, but she really loves her summers off. All of her free time is spent on Match.com trying to find Mr. Right in a Mr. Wrong world. She's not a Christ follower, but if she wanted to be a Christ follower, she could ch go check in at Hilton Garden Inn and open the drawer and find a Bible in her native tongue. She could drive to 112 churches within a 12-mile perimeter of her house and hear the gospel. She could go up to a stranger and say, are you a Christ follower? Are you a Christ follower? And she could wait until she hits one and says yes, who can share the gospel in her language. She's not interested in God, but she's reached 
because she has access. That's reached. <laughs> Unreached. 25-year-old, no Lulus and no Lattes, no Little Rocks, Saudi Arabia. She lives in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. She's a teacher. She has no access to God and will never in her life feel an Arabic New Testament. She will never meet and touch an Arabic Christ follower. She will never hear a message of the New Testament in Arabic. Even if she wants to know God, she can't. That is unreached. So you and I, very simply put, we need to be about reaching the reached here. We need to reach the reached. But we also need to give priority to the unreached. So as we are reaching the reached, we also need to give priority to the unreached. So I was in New York a few days ago. I flew in through DFW Airport. If you've ever been to DFW Airport, I'm assuming it's everybody in this room. Um, you get on a tram and you go around the airport and you, 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 you get off at your stop. You have A, B, C, D, E, and depending upon which way the tram goes is depending on if you can make your flight. It's very simple. And I'm on the tram and it's like there's no one on the tram. I'm like, wow. There's no, I, I had my, I had my choice of where to hang on to. But what struck my attention was there were four seats. And I was like walking over there. I was like, oh my gosh, I wanna, this is awesome. Like I want to sit down. And I go over and I look and just before I'm to sit down, there's a sign. Right above the seat, there's a sign. The sign says, these seats are reserved for those with the greatest needs. And I thought, why did they use the word greatest? How different would that be if it said, these are reserved for people with needs? I'm like, wow, I have a heel spur. I qualify. Right? You don't know. It hurts. But instead, DFW Airport said, no, 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 no. Everybody's going to justify their sitting here because they all have needs. But we've got to give priority to who? I'm, I stood there and I'm like, oh my gosh, what DFW got in like 1974, the church has yet to understand. Like what they understand of giving priority to the greatest needs is something the church has yet to understand. Matter of fact, if you were to write, if you were to write a one sentence summary of the last 100 years of American missions, if you had to write a one-sentence summary of the last 100 years of American missions, this is a great one-sentence summary. Here it is. We've done a great job sending Christians to help Christians become better Christians. We've done a great job sending Christians to help Christians become better Christians. I see this in every church I speak at. Everybody's so excited. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you're so excited. You're, we're so excited that someone's doing something in missions that no one stops and thinks, what are you doing? 
Like, we're so excited. We're, we're almost like, I mean, is that the best? Like, we're so, I'm excited that you're, you're going to wear burlap and strain your own water and go there, but is that the best? Like, is that the best? See, what this, what this shows us is this. What, what, the, what ethnos and people groups show us is this. The question is not to where are you going. The question is to whom. So when you tell me I'm going to Nigeria, that doesn't help. Are you going to the houses? Are you going to the Yorubas? Are you going to the Igbos? I'm going to China. Are you going to the Han, the Uyghurs? I'm going to Afghanistan, Pushtuns, Nuristonis. Like, I don't care to where you're going. I need to know to whom, and then I can tell you how reached or unreached they are and what your strategy needs to be. But instead, you ask people, where are you going? Guatemala. To where? Guatemala. Oh, to whom? Guatemala. Going to Guatemala. And it's like, we don't stop to think, what people group are you going to? Do you need to do evangelism or do you need mobilization? Do you need to stop discipleship? And so we just instead just have this one peg we hit on, oh, someone's doing something, so let's just go do it. How many people groups? We said Nigeria was 455, India 2,900. How many people groups in the world? There's roughly 17,000, just to simplify it. 17,000 people groups in the world. But what strategists realized, what strategists realized was that, man, we do a great job sending Christians to help Christians become better Christians. Of the 17,000, how many of them are considered unreached? Less than 2% Christian. Of the 17,000, about 7,000 of those are considered unreached, meaning they have less than 2% Christian. They need outside help. They need missionaries, training, education, money to, to further the gospel. If left alone, they cannot do it by themselves. They are unreached. But then mission strategists realized, wow, of the 6,900, there's a special category of those that have zero. Zero. In every category, they have zero. Zero percent Christ followers, zero percent churches, zero percent Bible translated, zero percent missionaries, zero percent hope. And mission strategist said, uh, if, if your people group has never, has never heard, seen, or read anything about the life, death, and resurrection, you are now in this completely new category. You're unengaged. We don't even know who you are. There was a girl who went to her pastor and said, we've got to get people more involved in the unengaged we've got to reach the unengaged peoples and the pastor looked at her and said this i don't think there's anything wrong with staying single your whole life if that's in the pulpit what's in the pew if that's the thinking if that's when he hears unengaged he thinks that what does that mean about those in the pew and their understanding and so, again, when you think about it, you're not, you're not here this week without understanding this idea of the 1040 window. We've circled back to it a few times. In this box is virtually all unreached people groups. The only reason I can't say 100%, I'll say 88%, is because Indonesia, the largest Muslim country of 180 million people, falls just outside the box. Otherwise, other than Indonesia, you've got pretty much the vast majority of every unreached and unengaged in this box. 1040 window, it's not a tax form. It's 10 degrees up from the equator, 40 degrees up, and it stretches across Asia. This is home of 65 countries. Every major world religion began in the 1040 window. 
And Todd Johnson just gave a landmark stat. 86% of those who will be born, who will live and die in the 1040 window will never meet a Christ follower. 86%. But we are so bent on sending Christians to help Christians become better Christians that only 3% of all missionaries go to the 1040 window. Only 1% of all funding goes to the 1040 window. We've got to reach the 1040 window, even if that means going farther, doing the harder things. We've got to give priority. So I tell university students all the time, if you're country neutral, if you're country neutral, which means if you pray for Brazil and you're like, I've been wanting to go there since I was seven, God's given me a heart for it, I want to go to Brazil, go to Brazil. But if you're country neutral, I tell, I tell our kids, choose a country in the 1040 window of where God wants you. Just, just if you're country neutral, choose the unreached. Choose the unreached. Now, there are some major obstacles to the 1040 window. There's major obstacles to the 1040 window. One of the first major obstacles, the 1040 window is hard to reach. One of the major obstacles, you heard from him if you've been following this series, um, B.J. Sanders and his wife, Jill, they, they live in uh, just north of Australia, in Papua New Guinea, and they work among the Wantakias. The tribal world is very difficult to reach. Now, let me give you some stats here, okay? Let me stat you to death. This is, this is so intriguing. Let me just paint a picture of how difficult it is for the tribal world. There's 6,913 languages in the world, okay? So there's 6,913 languages. Only 3% of the planet is tribal. That means you and I had a, th you had a 3% chance of being born in Papua New Guinea among a Bible poverty people. 3% of the planet is tribal. That's roughly 250 million. Okay, let's just repeat. 6,913 languages. You had a 3% chance of being born tribal. That's roughly 250 million peoples. Of, all, of, of the languages of the world, the tribal world speaks 5,100 languages. What does that mean? It means if you and I translate the New Testament into Arabic, we're going to hit 80 million people. When Robert Morrison translated the, the New Testament into Mandarin Chinese, he hit, what, 100 million, 200 million people during that time. But when a couple moves to Papua New Guinea among the tribal world and translates the New Testament, you're doing it for like 2,700 people, 6,000 people, 30,000 people. So it's a very difficult task because when you show up, there's just, there's no language, there's no alphabet, you're starting from scratch. When BJ and Jill and the Wantakia people, they all, they're all six from the University of Arkansas, by the way, and they, they, they moved to, to Papua New Guinea. If it didn't fit on the helicopter, they didn't go. And I remember, they're like at the airport, and I was like, hey, man, I was giving hugs, getting ready, you know, wish, ready to go to Starbucks. And um, I was like, how much time your plane leave? Get out of here, you know? And... Um, uh, I was like, I, I talked to BJ. I was like, BJ, question. Like, I didn't even ask. Like, how long are you guys going to be gone? Is this like a three-year? And he's like, oh. When you work among the tribal peoples, it's not a time commitment. It's a task commitment. We'll come back when the New Testament's completed in their language. So that's between 11 and 13 years. 
That's why the tribal world stays unreached because it's a huge commitment. Short-term missions will never reach the tribal world. They just, just won't happen. So the tribal world is a major obstacle to the 1040 window. But there's another obstacle to the 1040 window. India. India. I mean, think about this. Let me just, let me just give this to you. India... India is made up of 29 states. There's 29 states in India. India is home of roughly 1.2 billion people, and it's made up of 29 states. If, if you took one of those states, Uttar Pradesh right here, if you took one of those states and pulled, if you put the state of Uttar Pradesh, if you pulled out the state of Uttar Pradesh and placed it on the map and said, this is its own country, it's the fifth largest country in the world, outdoing even the, the nation Brazil. That's one state. That's why when I asked my friend Jason Mandrick, who wrote a book called Operation World, 350 pages, every, every country on the planet and how you can pray for it in alphabetical order. The guy's 35 and knows more about missions than I'll ever forget. I'm like, wait, no, he'll, he forgets more. I switched it. See how smart that is. I'm like, Jason, what's the top five most neediest countries in the world? Like, if you had five kids, where would you send them all? He's like, India, 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 China. And I'm like, dude, I need to write that down. How am I going to remember that? He's like, India, 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 China. I'm like, do it one more time. I don't want to forget it. He's like, India, 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 China. Millions of gods of India. Millions. Jesus is the multiple choice option. Let me just give you a story of one of the gods just to give you a flavor of who they worship, okay? Shiva, Shiva married goddess Pravati. Shiva is one of the top lords in India, he marries Pravati. They have a son, Ganesh. Shiva goes on a long journey. Shiva's a warrior god. Everywhere he goes, he carries a sword. Shiva comes back several years later once in his home, but someone's out front and won't let him in. Well, he's a destroyer god. He doesn't think. He just severs the head. He severs the head. Well, unbeknownst to him, it was the son, his son, Ganesh, who had grown up and was protecting the house. Shiva had just severed the head of his own son. When his wife, Pravati, comes out, she tells him what happened. He's seeing his head's son on the ground, and Shiva vows, whatever walks by next, I'm going to place its head on our son. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Whatever walks by next, I'm going to place its head on our son. Well, this isn't Fayetteville, Arkansas. This is India. So he didn't, he didn't see a dog, squirrel, or cat. What walks by next is an elephant. So Shiva does the, engages in the world's first head transplant and puts an elephant head on Ganesh. There's 100 million worshipers of Ganesh in India today. A friend of mine was in Delhi, India, and he was sitting on the curb waiting across the street, and all of a sudden this huge caravan of peoples, it was like they were picketing or something protesting. What he realized when he asked a local, he was like, oh, yeah, 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 we're trying, the government's trying to get everybody 18 and under to wear a helmet when they ride on motorcycles. He's like, there's a huge national petition when you, when you ride a motorcycle. If you're under 18, by law, they're trying to make it in order that you have to wear a helmet. And my friend's like, oh my gosh, that's their theme? He's like, yeah, he took a picture of the people picketing wanting this. Care for your head. Not everyone gets a replacement. And there's Ganesh. 
only 2%, only 2%, roughly 23 million Christians in India. And the vast majority of those are the lowest caste, the lowest caste, the, the, the outcast. There's virtually nothing going on among reaching the upper caste, those who are in government and power and can change. And yet, I mean, think about it. We can't be around this city without engaging in people who are Hindus. What would it look like for you to say, Lord, I want to reach the unreached who are in my own backyard? I mean, I heard 24,000 Hindus from India are moving to Bentonville within the next five years. I mean, think about that. What an unbelievable opportunity we have as our kids play soccer with Hindus, our doctors are Muslims, and we, we go to school with Buddhists. T is the tribal world. That's very difficult to reach. But then not only that, you have the Hindu world. And then you have Chinese. Chinese. Man, the Chinese world. 1255 AD. 1255 AD. Marco Polo. I know we know him as a water sport. Marco Polo. He literally, he was an Italian explorer. And he goes over the mountains of Turkey into China and, and finds favor with the emperor of Asia known as the Kublai Khan. After several years of friendship, Marco Polo and Kublai Khan have such a deep friendship. Marco Polo says, I got to go back to Rome and report to the church what I found. Marco Polo, as he's leaving, the Kublai Khan says, take this letter, take this letter to the Pope at Rome. And tell him that if he sends a hundred of his best priests, me and my entire leadership will convert to Christianity. Historians call it the most open door to the gospel in history. Marco Polo takes the letter, goes back to the Pope at Rome. The Pope at Rome puts out a decree. Oh, we need a hundred of our best priests to go over the mountains of Turkey and teach the Kublai Khan. They thought it was a trap. Zero volunteered. 21 years later, a man named John of Monte and another priest said, let's do it. It took them seven years to get there because they went through the Philippines. When they finally arrived, the Kublai Khan had died. And the only opportunities that you could have in China for religion was Confucianism, Taoism, and Buddhism. All three of those denied the existence of a God. So when you meet a Chinese, there's nowhere in their ideology for a God. Everything given to them, all three religions are open in China. If you're in China, you are more than welcome to be a Buddhist, a Taoist, or a Confucius. Because all three of those denied the existence of God. Today, listen to this, today there's 100 million Christians in China. That's one out of every 10 people. Think about that. But guess what? 98% of those are all in one people group, the Han. And so that's why when we go to China, it's important to say, to whom are you going? Are you going to the Tibetan Buddhists? Are you going to the Uyghurs? Are you going to the people groups that have nothing? Or you keep sending Christians to help Christians become better Christians? So even when you go into the China, you've got to ask the question, to whom are you going? To whom are we strategizing? The tribal world. 
the Hindu world, the Chinese world, the Muslim world, the Muslim world. I mean, who knew? 570 AD, a man named Muhammad Ibn Abdullah al-Heshemite. That's his full name, right? We, we know him as Muhammad, the short name. But the last name's important. The last name of Muhammad represented the God that he worshipped. See if you can hear the God he worshipped. Muhammad Ibn Abdullah al-Heshemite. He worshipped the Heshemite God. And there were 310 other deities that he could choose from. So when he was six years old, his mother and father passed away. He was left to himself, really, but his uncle took him in. His uncle's name was Abu Talib. And he had, to water, he had to water camels to make a living. By the time he was a teenager, he knew the caravan routes across the Saudi desert so well that he was taking these caravan routes across the Saudi desert. On one of these caravan routes, he met a person who called themselves a Jew. And he's like, wait, how many gods do Jews worship? And he's like, one. On another caravan route, he met a person who called himself a Christian. He's like, how many gods do Christians worship? Like, one. And Muhammad's like, wait, there's 310 gods. And the Christians and Jews are like, no, there's one. And Muhammad would steal away in a cave and ask God, who are you? Who are you? And it is said when he was 40 years old in 610 AD, the angel Gabriel appeared in the cave and spoke the holiest phrase ever spoken by any, by any person. The angel Gabriel said this, La ilaha illallah wa Muhammad Rasul Allah. La ilaha illallah wa Muhammad Rasul Allah. There is one God, Allah, and you, Muhammad, are his prophet. And Muhammad was pulled between, man, do I tell people? Do I go against the Heshemite God? He ends up going against the, he ends up telling a few people for 10 years. The prophet's now 60, the, the prophet is now 50 years old. He has the vision at 40, he's now 50 for 10 years. He tells people. He gets about 100 followers, and his own people want to try to kill him. He ends up having to flee north to a city called Medina, where Jews and Christians lived and gave him protection. After 13 years, he's now 63 years old. He goes back down to Mecca. He has not 100 followers. He has 10,000 followers. And in a bloodless battle, he's crowned prophet and king. He unites all gods under one god and him being the supreme prophet. That year, at age 63, he dies of a fever, leaving behind no written work. Yet today, two out of every seven people breathing would die for that man. Two out of every seven people breathing. And yet, we don't even see the unreached. Not only do we not see them over there, we don't see them over here. I remember I was taking a guy, I was like, hey man, do you know any Muslims? He's like, I don't know any Muslims. I was like, you need to get a Muslim friend. He's like, I don't even know how to get a Muslim friend. I'm like, I'm going to get you a Muslim friend. He's like, I don't even know. What do I, what do, I do? I was like, let's go to the mosque. He's like, is that like in Tulsa? I'm like, let's go to the mosque. Just go hang out. Chillax. Wash our feet. Eat a date. And... Uh, so we go over to the mosque. He's like, bro, I thought the closest mosque was in Tulsa. This is where I park for English class. I park in the lot right here to go to English, yet I didn't have eyes to see. 
And that's the thing. Reaching the unreached means you have eyes to see not only over there. Oh, my goodness. The vast majority of Christ followers you know aren't going aren't gonna to see any of this, right? you got to have eyes to see. But then it doesn't mean I grow a beard, learn Arabic, quit my job, and, and, and you know. It doesn't mean that. It means, man, I just need to open it. Who's around me? Who's around me? We need to be about giving priority to the unreached, the tribal world, the Hindu world, the Chinese world, the Muslim world. Um, I was just, just to give you an idea, I was, in the, I was in a mosque in Los Angeles, California, and the mosque the imam, priest, brought me down to the basement, and he's like, Todd, every mosque in the U.S. has this map. And he showed me the map. I took a picture of the map. He's like, every mosque in the U.S. has this map. He's like, it's color-coded. Every major mosque in the world is spending, they're spending $1 billion to do this. The green in Arabic, color-coded, the green represents the places in the world that's highly Islamic. The pink and red are the areas of the world that has no Muslim presence. We're asking Allah to send our youth to the pink and red. And in that moment, I thought, oh my gosh. I could literally help him out a ton and probably expedite the evangelization of Muslims to America by letting him know, you know, it could be your idea. An 80-80 window? It's worked for us. Think about it. But I didn't tell them that. Why? I don't want momentum there. And then you, the, the, there's major obstacles to reaching the unreached, right? You got the, the tribal world. You got the Hindu world. You got the Chinese world. You got the Muslim world. And you got the Buddhist world. I mean, oh, my goodness. The founder of Buddhism, the founder of Buddhism was a Hindu. 563 B.C., he's disillusioned with Hinduism. He leaves Nepal and goes south. He goes south to learn about the meaning of life. Interesting, had he gone west, he could have studied under Jeremiah, our, our prophet. But instead he went south. There was no one for him to hear from. He sat under a tree for 49 days, vowing to live off a grain of rice a day until he found the meaning of life. His name was Siddhartha Gautama. After 49 days, he passes out. He sees a light with four noble truths. And he feels like the meaning of life is to engage in those four noble truths. When he comes to, people around him were shouting, enlighten, when enlighten, when enlighten, when, well, they weren't speaking English. They were speaking the language of Pali. How do you say, say enlighten, when in the Pali language? Buddha, Buddha, Buddha. So Siddhartha Gautama changes his name to Buddha, travels North India from age 30 to 83. For 53 years, he teaches these four noble truths. At age 83, someone puts a bad piece of meat in his beggar's bowl. And he dies of food poisoning. And today, 600 million people follow the teachings of the Buddha. Think about that. 600 million people. So, Mauritania, 99% Muslim. Yemen, 99% Muslim. Maldives, 99% Muslim. Turkey, 96% Muslim. Thailand, 85% Buddhist. Cambodia, 83% Buddhist. We are so excited 
to send Christians, to help Christians become better Christians, that no one thinks to ask, where is no one going? Who wants to volunteer, and how can we get you there? How can we pray for you? Where are those from these countries in my backyard, and how do I not know them? How am I not meeting them? How am I not engaging them with the gospel? Minamar, 80% Buddhist. Bhutan, 75% Buddhist. India, 75% Hindu. Nepal, 75% Hindu. I remember where I was. I remember where I was. I saw the news. I didn't care. Something about in a small province of China, something called COVID. I moved on. I was seeing who's in March Madness. And, and then I remember, like, wait a second, it kept popping up in my newsfeed, this COVID in China, and it's kind of overtaking China. And I was like, yawn, you know, not my problem, sorry, got some major speaking gigs, real excited about this, I've got a life here, we're going to Destin, who cares? Then, then, then I saw... Italy shut down. <laughs> Who cares? I'm not going to Italy, at least in the next decade. You know, what do I care? Italy, I don't even know an Italian. I don't even play soccer. I don't even eat spaghetti. I'm like, who cares, right? Like, I had zero desire to engage. Then all of a sudden, newsfeed. Some random TSA agent led a Randar Chinese into Washington, the state. Now, first case in America. Still. That's a, that's a seven-hour flight. Maybe. Who cares? It's from here to Dallas to Seattle, I'm not, he ain't going to be here soon. Then I remember first case in Arkansas. Then I remember it's spreading in Arkansas. Then I remember my wife testing positive. And I thought, how incredible. What started in a small place in Wuhan, China, has now made it to my master bedroom. And it's affected everything. It affected my job. It affected my kids. It affected my vacation. It affected graduations. It affected how I engaged with my parents. It affected the way I shop. It affected the way I worship. It affected where I worship. There was no aspect of my life that wasn't touched by this. But what started with a distant crisis had to become my reality. For the unreached, for the 1040 window, and for every Christ follower you know, it's not my problem. It's distant, distant crisis. No thanks. Yawn. I've got these things going on. I don't even really think about that. And yet, God invites us to let this distant crisis become our reality. And the question is, will we? Will we? Every blue dot you see represents a community of 50,000 Christians. Every blue dot you see represents 50,000 Christians. Every blue dot you see represents 50,000 Christians. Every uh, green dot you see represents 50,000 Muslims. Every green dot you see represents 50,000. 
thousand Muslims. Every orange dot you see represents 50,000 Buddhists. Every orange dot you see represents 50,000 Buddhists. Every yellow dot you see represents 50,000 Hindus. Every yellow dot you see represents 50,000 Hindus. Hey, Mandrick, what are the top five most neediest nations in the world? India, 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 China. So, let's take the last few minutes and look at this passage. One we've looked at, one you know, one you could have quoted, probably in both the Luke version and the Matthew version. The harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. But let's just take what we've learned the last 49 minutes and let's, let's, let's push it up on this, okay? So let's take what we've learned over the last 49 minutes and let's push it up here. The harvest. The harvest. Who's the harvest? The harvest. Well, the harvest is going to be both the reached who are lost near us and the unreached in the 1040 window. The harvest. Who's the harvest? The harvest are those who are the reached and the unreached. The harvest. Both the reached and the unreached are plentiful. 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 The unreached grow at 70,000 per day. They're plentiful. That means there's 26 million new unreached every year they're plentiful in sweden there are approximately two kids per household sweden is 70 percent christian in finland there are two kids per household finland is 65 percent christian in the uk there are two kids per household. The UK is 65% Christian. In America, there are approximately two kids per household. America is 86% Christian. In Niger, there are nine kids per household. Niger is 99% Muslim. In Burkina Faso, there are eight kids per household. 
Burkina Faso is 99% Muslim. In Pakistan, there are seven kids per household. Pakistan is 97% Muslim. In Afghanistan, there are six kids per household. Afghanistan is 98% Muslim. There are more unreached tomorrow than today. The harvest, the reached and unreached, they're plentiful. <laughs> they are growing. But the workers, who's a worker? Who's a worker? All oh, the workers. Who's a worker? A worker is a Christ follower who has revolved their life around reaching the reached and unreached. The worker. Who's a worker? The worker are the Christ followers who revolve their life around reaching the reached and unreached. And then in these nine words of Jesus, in these nine words of Jesus, he utters the saddest words of his public ministry. They're few. Virtually no one is doing this. Why are they few? Why are the workers few? They're few because all the workers are self-absorbed. They're few because a lot of the workers are uneducated on the unreached. They're few because... If they're not self-absorbed and they move from out of self-absorption to, 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 to understanding the unreached, they then realize, wow, the unreached are hard to reach. And so it keeps them as few. The harvest, the reached and the unreached are plentiful. The workers, Christ's followers engage in reaching the unreached are few. I told a friend of mine a few weeks ago, I said, how cool would it be? How cool would it be if by 2060 we reverse the verse? How cool would it be if by 2060 we were able to stand up here and say the harvest is few, the workers plentiful? What would it look like in your life to not only activate yourself but think about others? To say, man, what would it look like if I revolve my life around activating others? To where I could look at 2060 and say, the harvest is few. We're doing it. The workers are plentiful. 